Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Anna Linville. And I'm Tara Ghirardella. And today, our guest composer is Eleni Lilios. Eleni Lilios creates works that reflect her fascination with listening, sound, space, time, immersion, and anecdote. Her compositions include stereo, multi-channel, and ambisonic fixed media works, instruments with live interactive electronics, collaborative experimental audio and visual animations, and installations. Her work has been recognized internationally and nationally through awards including a Fromm Foundation Commission, the Barlow Endowment Commission, the Fulbright Award, Electroacoustic Piano International Competition, just to name a few. Eleni serves as a director of composition activities for the Splice Institute and is a professor of creative arts excellence at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're really excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I have to say, you know, we we were listening, getting to know your music during the week. The level of immersion took me by surprise. And oh, thank you. Um, when I listened to Dreams in the Desert, I was like, oh my gosh, where am I? Like this, mm-hmm. I just, it took me to another planet. You're right. You're in the desert. You're having a dream about water. So exactly. So you recorded that at home and you you had some other locations. What were the how did you record the the water sounds? The water sounds took a very long time to record and I recorded them in a number of different places. I started re- making recordings for this piece I think in 1998 when I was studying at the University of Birmingham with John T. Harrison and I did some recordings at his home in his kitchen sink. I did some recordings then in Texas at my uh, now husband's home. They had an in-ground pool. And so we did a bunch of recordings in an in-ground pool. And then, of course, there are just recordings that happened in a number of... Then some recordings here in Bowling Green, Ohio, where I live currently, some ice sounds, outdoors, icicles. I went to the Bowling Green State University Ice Arena and I recorded a hockey game that actually appears in this piece toward the end. And I recorded a Zamboni. (laughs) The the Zamboni is in the piece. So this piece, the source material for this piece was recorded in a lot of different places. Is creating sounds for you a big part of your composition and does sometimes a a sound trigger an idea for a whole piece for you? Yes, I think that's true. Both on both counts. I think that sometimes when I start to do field recordings and I record different types of sounds that can give me an idea for a piece. Uh, But at the end of the day, when I compose fixed media music, especially like pieces like Dreams in the Desert, I certainly pay the most attention to the sounds. I focus on those sounds. So I'm a little bit of a timbre junkie. I I Hmm. really like the sound of sounds. And I, I think that with fixed media composition, 
There's no performer to look at. So there's no visuals to engage with. So your audience can really focus on the listening process a little bit like what like we do when we listen to radio. There's no visuals to distract us, right? So we can really focus in on listening. So creating sounds, both recording sounds and then processing them and then putting them together to make pieces is very important to me. The sound of the sounds, the timbre. So how would this piece be performed? You know, take us through what it would be like to attend the performance of this piece. Well, you may encounter this piece in a normal concert hall or recital hall at a university or college, etc. And you would go and sit down and Typically, we dim the lights oftentimes, or we turn the lights off, and the music is played directly from the computer. We used to play using CD players, but now we just play directly from the computer and to um, loudspeakers that are located in the performance space. Depending on where the performance space is located, there could be a variable number of loudspeakers, anywhere from two to maybe a hundred. So uh, when I'm having performances in Montreal, Canada, or in the UK, oftentimes they have very large sound systems. I was going to ask you, you know, talking about sounds and how much you love to find and create sounds, do you have a favorite sound, especially in this world of ASMR, right? Where, where people talk about these satisfying sounds. What mm. is the most satisfying sound for you? That's a very good question. I, in, I studied, as I mentioned, with John T. Harrison at the University of Birmingham in England back in 1998, which is where I really discovered this idea of composing organically using recorded sounds. And I remember that I was working in the studio and I had made for me, I had made the perfect sound. And it was a little bit watery and bubbly and it was warm and it had, <laughs> it had this kind of bubbly texture to it. And I sat in the studio and I listened to it over and over and over again. And it was so beautiful and it was so perfect. And I remember that when I ended up composing this piece that I happened to be working on, the piece, the sound was so perfect that I couldn't put it into the piece. It just wow. didn't, it didn't fit with any of the other sounds. It was, it was too perfect. It, it couldn't mm. go with anything. Mm. And that was a very interesting lesson, I think, for me, that sometimes these perfect sounds, maybe they are perfect by themselves, but they then lack the ability to mix with other sounds to create something greater than themselves. That maybe sounds a little silly, right? No, but, I, it makes sense to know, me. I mean, it, it makes, it could apply to other things, you know, yes. other ideas and philosophies, you know, things right. that seem perfect as an mm -hmm. idea on paper, um, that when you try to apply it to the real world, it, it's a complete disaster. Right? <laughs> it's, too, it's too perfect. Yeah, it was. That's and that's what happened. So I no longer, I no longer look for my perfect sound 
I look for, well, I'm listening for sounds that have certain shapes, sounds that have certain personalities. When I, when I teach my students about electroacoustic music, I, I teach them that the sounds have certain personalities. And when you listen to them very closely, you can discover their character. And the character of the sound tells you what they want to do because it tells you what they are. They are, they're an arriver, like they're a sound that goes bloop, you know, an arrival sound, or they're a pusher sound that helps you get to another sound, you know, something that sort of maybe goes So each of the different sounds that we make as composers, if we listen to them very carefully, they tell us what they do best. And that's how I know where to put them in a piece, for instance. Now, is is Dreams in the Desert a completely electronic piece or is it mixed with live performance? No, there is no live performance in Dreams in the Desert. Dreams in the Desert is meant to be listened to via loudspeakers. So what you hear in the piece is is what is always there. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a listen to this piece now. Again, its title is Dreams in the Desert. It appears on the Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States, Compact Disc Series, Volume Number 13.
That was Dreams in the Desert by Eleni Lilios. Eleni, um, we were just having a little chat while this music was playing about the way that you do the way that you do these recordings and how you process these sounds. I mean, they're sounds we've all we all know, yes, but they don't. But we might not recognize them in this piece necessarily. Like the Zamboni was just. It was like this <laughs> magical sound. Mm. <laughs> um, I I wish that we could mark for our listeners where all these things happen, but I think they can probably figure it out. Um, 
how did the, the, the sound of the kind of crunching, um, mm. it was like this beautiful crunching sound. What was that? That was walking through snow in Montreal on a mountain. <laughs> so I went, I was visiting some friends in Montreal and I was taking my audio recorder with me everywhere at that time because I was actively recording sounds for pieces and, one of my friends said, hey, do you want to go skiing? And I said, well, no, I, I can't ski. I said, but I'll come along with you if you want to ski. So there were three of us went and I attached my microphones to my boots and I went kind of walking, you know, crunch, crunching through the snow, but then also sliding uh, through the snow, you know, just sort of dragging my feet through the snow. And those sounds appear there toward the end of the piece. Uh, before we get too far into this discussion about the piece, I do want to mention also, in addition to the compact disc series that I mentioned earlier, this piece is also on your solo CD titled Entree Escapes. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's Entree Espace, Between Spaces. You know, we, we were chatting while we were listening to the piece, and we were just going back and forth talking about all the fascinating sounds we were hearing and, and how you were able to process those sounds. So I wanted to ask uh, to you if you could explain to us a little bit about what it's like to take the original sound and then work it. And what kind of things do you do? I guess in layman's terms, what are some of the things you're able to do to these sounds to turn them into the music that you turn them into? Sure. Thank you for asking. So the, the process of making sounds for me, for processing sounds is about discovering what their potential is. So you have a sound and maybe it's, uh, the sound of mm, some water in a two liter bottle and you shake that bottle right? And you record that bottle. And we've all done this, right? We have a bottle, it's halfway filled with something, and we shake it, you shake it slowly, you shake it quickly, you wobble it back and forth, you know, you, if it's fizzy water, you might unscrew the cap to hear that sound. And so these are the types of things that I do when I'm recording sounds, I take an object, and then I just explore what kinds of sounds that object can make. Then those recordings are, are either transferred to, or I record them directly to my computer. And I have some software that enables me to change the sounds, to process them in various ways. I can stretch them out so that they, you know, a sound that maybe is a instead of doing that, it goes so I can stretch sounds out to make them really long. I can turn them into, you know, a small stream of bubbles, for instance, into many layers of bubbles. And so it's about, for me, this the process of processing sound, for lack of a better term, is about discovering the potential that is in that sound. And I talk about it in terms of creating sonic families, creating sound families, right? So you have the parent sound, 
which is your original sound. And then maybe you add something to that sound, like reverberation, which is a tool that makes it seem like the sound is in a cave or the sound is out, you know, in the open somewhere. And then you make another version and you add some other different processing. So you might end up with a number of children and then children of those children and so on. So you can create the whole family tree of sounds and not all of them end up in the piece, but it gives you a lot of material to choose from. It's kind of like it when you talk, the way you talk about it reminds me of the way sculptors talk about working with a piece of stone that this piece mm -hmm. of stone has already, it knows what it wants to be. Or, and you just have to discover that. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. I've heard sculptors talk that way about stone. Yes, before. it's true. So I, I want to ask you a little bit. You've talked a lot about how fascinated your fascination with sound. You know, you, you're, you're also in, fascinated by words and poetry, but you don't necessarily include that word, the words of the poetry in your work. The next piece we're going to talk about, Sleep's Undulating Tide was inspired by a poem. Is that right? Yes, it's true. Uh, Sleep's Undulating Tide is inspired by Margaret Atwood's poem, Variation on the Word Sleep. And what's the, what, is the, what is the text about? Because I, I tend to like to read the poems that inspire our composer's works on the air, if I can, if I can find them. So talking about the narrative of this piece... I have to include talking about my performers because when I work with live performers and Sleep's Undulating Tide is a piece for flute and live electronics, flute and electronics. My work with performers is very collaborative. So I was working with flutist Lindsay Goodman. And in these situations, rather than coming from a place of just the sounds, like I did with Dreams in the Desert, I like to have some extra musical inspiration. And Anna, as you mentioned, in this instance, it's text or poetry and this poem by Margaret Atwood. So Lindsay Goodman is a huge fan of Margaret Atwood and her work. And when we found this poem, Variation on the Word Sleep, we both really loved it because it deals with, it talks about sleep and about sleeping and dreaming and how when someone is sleeping or dreaming, we can't reach them. You know, when someone is sleeping, they are somehow separated from us. And Atwood makes a number of different analogies and talks about uh, Orpheus and, uh, you know, and a number of different, a lot of different imagery dealing with sleep, dreaming, and also sex. Ooh. Well, I actually did find it. I had looked it up on um, Sleep's Undulating Tide. I was looking for her poem, Sleep's Undulating Tide. Yes. That's the problem. <laughs> right. But I did well, find it. So um, We did not name the yeah. piece after the poem. The, <laughs> yeah. Giving the, the piece a different, a different title. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Orpheus's Descent into Hell to Rescue Eurydice and... Mm -hmm talking about forests of blue green leaves it's a the poem has just very very beautiful and evocative imagery can i ask about the flute um because one of the thoughts i had 
and actually Anna and I were even speaking about this earlier, that maybe there are some instruments that tend to blend better with electronics than other instruments. We, we tend to feel that there's a lot of flute, not just in your pieces, but in the whole landscape of electronic acoustic music, there's a lot of flute. And I was wondering if there is a lot of flute because it blends well with electric music and what your thoughts were on that. And why did you choose the flute as well? Well, I didn't choose the flute. The flutist chose me. So Lindsay Goodman had had commissioned me to compose this piece for her. She had played another piece of mine that's for alto flute and live electronics. And she said, Eleni, I'd like you to compose a piece for me. And that's this Sleep's Undulating Tide. But I think there perhaps there are maybe a number of reasons why or why not people perform certain types of music. It's possible that flutists, and this is certainly good for true for Lindsay, that, you know, Lindsay is a great virtuosic flutist. She's also a very strong supporter of new music and new music commissioning and included in that. Uh, is electroacoustic music. She has her own sound system that she takes to concerts. I mean, she is very, very dedicated. And when you think about other instrumentalists, you know, some people love electroacoustic music. I know tuba players who play tuba and electronics pieces, percussionists, all different instruments. So, but maybe the flutists are just especially engaged in it. I, I don't know. And I, I wouldn't want to make a guess about it because for every instrument I can think of, I'm, I know that I have heard a piece for that piece with electronic music, including bagpipes. I would like to hear that. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Well, let's go ahead and listen to Sleep's Undulating Tide, and then we can talk a little bit more about it when we come back. This is Mm. Sleep's Undulating Tide by Eleni Lilios with Lindsay Goodman on the flute.
I don't know where to start. That piece is just so intense and so like I'm taking me down into its microscopic realm, you know, mm-hmm. all the little details and, and the whispering and the subtleties and the, the, the bigness and smallness of it all happening together. You know, the, uh, what is the line being unnoticed, but being so necessary. Mm. And, um, I feel like the whole piece has got all of that mixed in. I, I love all of the picture painting of, uh, you know, that, that corresponds with the poem, and the boat, and you hear the creaking of the boat. One of the things that really, uh, comes to my mind when I'm listening to this is about the performance itself and something I had thought about is how the performer is actually performing to the electronics. Is there a click track involved? No, there is no click track in this piece. In this piece, the, the flutist is actually generating the electronic portion by performing. But then there are also some sound files, like you mentioned, the boat creaking. And of course, there there are various water sounds and, and, uh, and bird chirpy sounds. Those are sound files. But anything that sounds flute-like in the piece is actually being generated by Lindsay as she performs. She also performed the spoken parts. She has such a wonderful voice. Yes, and the singing. She wanted a piece mm. for Flute with also singing, where she performs both as a vocalist and as a flutist. That's amazing. And and some of the lines that she was actually singing and at times speaking were, in, in some cases, they were lines from the poem, correct? No, those are, no, those are not lines from the poem. You know, we, um, we used the poem to inspire the piece, but we decided not to put any of the poem actually into the piece. So those lines that she speaks toward the end are little lines that I just made up based on the idea of the poem. You know. Got it. Um, well, I'd like to just take a quick minute and read the poem because I'm sure people are dying <laughs> to know what the text was that inspired this piece. Anna, please. So um, this is Variation on the Word Sleep by Margaret Atwood. I would like to watch you sleeping, which may not happen. I would like to watch you sleeping. I would like to sleep with you to enter your sleep as its smooth dark wave slides over my head and walk with you through that lucent wavering forest of blue green leaves with its watery sun and three moons towards the cave where you must descend towards your worst fear. I would like to give you the silver branch, the small white flower, the one word that will protect you from the grief at the center of your dream, from the grief at the center. I would like to follow you up the long stairway again and become the boat that would row you back carefully, a flame in two cupped hands to where your body lies beside me, and you enter it as easily as breathing in. I would like to be the air that inhabits you for a moment only. I would like to be that unnoticed and that necessary. So stunning. I, I just love that these that such great artists can inspire each other. And no, it's, it's true. You know what I mean? It's true. <sighs> it's a very evocative poem, and I can see how how that would have really inspired you to compose the piece. And and of course. Um, 
the the way that you matched the flavor of the poem as well in your mm-hmm. work. You know, I think your work already has this really uh, mysterious, evocative quality to it, and this poem is such a perfect, perfect piece of art to pair it with. You know, as we wind down here on the show, we always like to ask our guests about upcoming works because, you know, the composer's studio is not just about learning about what you've done and learning about who you are, but also learning about what you're going to be doing. So we would love to know about any upcoming projects you have coming. Thank you for asking. I have a number of things in the hopper. I am right now finishing a piece for vibraphone and fixed media for percussionist Jordan Walsh, who is based at the University of Texas in Austin. I am also composing a piece right now for the Splice Ensemble, which is a trio of trumpet, piano, and percussion. And I have a number of other projects as well, a project that I have not started yet, but that I'm thinking about for the Unheard Of Ensemble. They are based in New York City, and they are a quartet, a Messian instrumentation quartet. So many projects and many exciting sounds to discover. That's really awesome. I'm very excited for what you're going to be doing next. And I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but those pieces, because uh, you mentioned a lot of uh, traditional instrumentations, are there going to be electronic elements to those works as well? Yes. All three of those pieces I mentioned will have some type of electronic component to them. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've actually, I wanted to ask you about the Splice Institute itself. Um, you are involved with the Splice Institute. Tell us about that, Yes, the, the organization and what they do. Thank you for giving me a moment to talk about Splice. So Splice Institute is a week-long summer program that is open to composers and performers who are interested in engaging with music technology. We sometimes, well, depending on whether or not we are online or in person, we often pair composers and performers together where composers will write a piece that is then premiered at the end of the week by a part, by a participating performer. We have workshops that take place. There's always a guest, a featured guest composer and a featured performer or ensemble. And so it's a great opportunity for people to come together as a community to explore creative music making, either composition or performance, using technology. It's a really wonderful community of people. Um, Well, we're going to close the show out with another one of your pieces called Immeasurable Distance. And I know that this piece, uh, it was commissioned by Scott Deal, and Scott Deal is a percussionist. Uh, is he also the percussionist on the recording? Yes. And it was composed for uh, Roger Shupp. It was composer in in his memory. Um, I wanted to give you a moment to speak about Roger, what his impact was for you and who he was. Thank you. So Roger Shoup was the percussion professor here at Bowling Green State University, where I teach. And he was just an amazing and wonderful colleague and a very talented musician. Before he became ill, he came up with an idea to have all of the composers write a piece for him that he was going to perform. But the instruments had to fit 
into a suitcase. Well, unfortunately, Roger became ill and he passed away before the piece could be realized. And so Scott Deal and I have been collaborating together for many years. Uh, Immeasurable Distance is the third piece that we have done together. And I just, I approached Scott and I said, Scott, I'd really still like to write this piece, you know, for Roger, but now in memory of Roger. And he said, Eleni, let's do it. And so the first thing we had to figure out is what was in the suitcase because Roger never told us. <laughs> so Scott and I got together at his home studio. We picked the instruments and I wrote the piece and Scott does a beautiful job playing it. Thank you so much, Eleni, for being with us today. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you here and um Gosh, we've learned a lot. <laughs> the, oh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You have been listening to The Composer Studio with our guest, composer Delaney Lilios. The last piece now we're going to listen to is A Measurable Distance. It's for percussion and live interactive electroacoustics. It is being performed by Scott Deal, who was mentioned in our conversation.
Thank you for listening to The Composer's Studio, available wherever you get your podcasts. And keep listening to the music of today.